Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the Poetry People and Things channel. Um, I'm your host, Megan Wildhood, and I have with me here Steve Fox, another press mate of mine, Cornerstone Press. Uh, Steve Fox is the winner of the Rick Bass Montana Prize for Fiction, the Great Midwest Writing Contest, the Jade Ring Award, and a Midwestern Gothic Summer Flash Contest. His fiction has appeared in New New Ohio Review, Orca, A Literary Journal, Midwest Review, Midwestern Gothic, Wisconsin People and Ideas, Whitefish Review, and others. He holds a Master's of Arts in Spanish from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has lived and worked in four continents. Steve now resides in his home state of Wisconsin with his wife, Stephanie, three boys and one dog. And you can find all of his works at www.stevefoxwrites.com, which will be linked in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you about this collection called Sometimes Creek, which was released in January of 2023 this year from Cornerstone Press. Um, This is a uh, short story collection. I typically do poetry, but um, this this actually read a lot like poetry to me. (laughs) So um, and I also love a good fiction collection. This was um, this was fascinating. And so I'm excited to jump in to discuss these um curious and thought-provoking stories i read this a while ago and i some of the characters keep popping up (laughs) in my in my consciousness like wondering how they're doing so um good job creating the characters that kind of worm their way in and stick in your mind um this a lot of this felt pretty realistic i know some of it is or most of it's set in the midwest um and so as someone who I've only driven through uh, and have, I guess I lived in Columbus for a while, but Columbus, Ohio, um, but the setting felt very alive and real to me. And so I wondered what, um, as you said, you live in Wisconsin, um, what is the relationship between uh, the events in these stories um, and like kind of your real life experience? Like how much did you draw from uh, in terms of kind of what you lived through? Right, yeah. You know, it wasn't really until I looked at the collection as a whole that I realized kind of what I had done with regard to the setting itself. Um, and it's a very powerful thing. It's almost like a character unto itself and it worked its way into the character's psyche. And I, I didn't really think about it either. Um, characters outside a lot in these stories, not necessarily like canoeing and kayaking and wet water rafting and hiking, but they're just outside. Uh, looking at the sidewalk papers or watching somebody plant trees or just walking dogs, you know, or bats in the case of one of the guys. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, you know, writing what I'm more, most familiar with, and I guess the thing that's within arm's reach is describing, you know, a place where the seasons are very strongly marked. Uh, winter is very different than it is in summer here in spring and fall. And um, it's, the, the settings just always been there in terms of personal experience. Uh, I don't really write about things that happen specifically in my life, but rather um, a lot of the, what inspired the story is 
things I notice and casual observances. And then I can kind of invent the story around those things. Cool. Okay. That was, yeah, one of my questions was what's kind of, what was the inspiration for, I guess, the collection as a whole, but kind of in particular, each story. And so it sounds more like, oh, noticing something um, and then this a story forms around that. Um, yeah, sometimes sometimes it's several things, and some stories often beget other stories. It's I have a really difficult time seeing one single story as its own uh, entity. I mean, there's always a story thread that makes its way like into a supermarket and bumps into a cart. Uh, a lot of these narr- narratives are really close and inside the person's head, and then in some ways, you know, like. But what's the book about, right? Well, it's a collection of stories, and then it's kind of about people's obsessions, and they're all kind of processing something. And while they're processing something or this anxieties at work, um, that's when the shopping carts bump, or that's when this glance is seen from over a shoulder, or somebody steps on a, steps on a stick and it snaps, and then the dialogue kind of opens up the story a little bit more, and that's that's kind of where it happens for me. Yes, I when I was reading, I did have the experience of um, pretty intense interiority in the in the the narrator's head or the main character's head, and um, you really captured the sort of the and I don't use this word clinically, but like rumination or like something. There's a focal point for um, the speaker or the the main character, and um, some of these focal points are so interesting, um, like just. They're just, uh, and I can see the connection points too between the stories. I had wondered if um, you had intended to write it as a collection, or if you're writing stories and then you're noticing, oh, this actually is a collection. So it kind of sounds like stories sort of beget and open up other stories. Um, it, was this an intentional collection, or was it kind of noticing what was coming from other stories? Yeah, I think the latter, you know, I think it's noticing what's coming from other stories. One story, like I said, kind of braids off into another pretty organically. Uh, one analogy I make is of a crossword puzzle where uh, one story thread can be a solution crossing the page, you know, in the, the across fashion, and the other story thread comes down vertically. And where they intersect is where they've got that one letter in common, and that's the square where the carts bump or the car door slams or something happens right and then the story moves on and that secondary character continues and i always wonder about the secondary character and to me it's um you know nobody's a secondary character in their own story right so they often have their own stories um but with regard to the collection yeah there i've written i probably got about four other collections that are just kind of sitting on a hard drive somewhere and they're in different states of polishedness um, but some are more linked than others. So it's like, yeah, I really like my characters. I mean, even if I kill them, I, I still love my characters. And it doesn't mean they can't have a story, you know, that's written about them after I've killed them off or something horrible happens. You know, it's a blank page. One of my one of the women in my writer's group got, became very upset that I wrote a story about a gentleman who had perished in the previous story I'd written. And I said, well, you can... You're allowed to do that as a writer. You can make it up. Yeah, yeah, totally. Especially in this sort of gothic, magical realism kind of uh, area that you orbit in these uh, these stories. So, yeah, because it's it's uh, these stories to me seem to teach the reader how to read them as you're reading them. Um, 
and then how to find the connections uh, as some of the connections are very obvious, like mice appear in several stories um, and, and or rodent like things like bats and stuff. And so that was that kind of gave an overall feeling um, just as the the setting did. And I, I also felt like the 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 setting or the scenes um, was itself kind of a, a character that seemed to be um, alive. And I was interested in it for its own sake, too, as well as just because it wasn't just a backdrop for uh, the stories. It was like very important that these stories happened where they did. Um, and I wondered if that if that was kind of unique to to these stories, because, um, oh, and you had said you hadn't really noticed this until the whole collection came together, uh, that it was the, the setting sort of stood out as its own kind of has had its own life and its own um, character uh, to go with it, which was pretty consistent uh, throughout. Yeah, you know, I started reading the blogs that came in and, or the, pardon me, the blurbs that came in and uh, a, a couple of them mentioned Midwest, you know, um, quintessentially, you know, like Amber Sparks is talking about how Midwestern these stories feel and things like that. And, uh, you know, and then um, Alice Kaltman said, don't be fooled. You know, these Midwestern stories are dark and what lurks behind them is the softest and that. And, uh, like, what's going on here? You know, I didn't really, you know, I don't know what people imagine when they think of the Midwest, but it's a big area. And I live in the upper, I live in the upper Midwest. So it's a very great lakes and, um, you know, northern climes. I mean, Wisconsin is not Kansas. I don't even consider Kansas part of the Midwest, you know, um, even though I guess technically it is. But um, anyway, um, but I, I like what you said about teaching the reader how to read the stories. I think that is kind of an exercise that you do as a writer. You have to, uh, like, sometimes I switch perspectives a lot. So uh, you're in one person's head, then in the next paragraph, you're in the other. They have to make it so that that's not so jarring and the character, or pardon me, the reader doesn't get lost in it. And that's where you kind of need beta readers to, you know, make sure you're not losing them. Or if they catch something, that's when you got to kind of go in there and stitch that up and make it better. Um, one of the stories, um, then it would be raining. Um, I wrote nearly all of it on my phone, um, which had an impact on the narrative structure of the story. It was very fragment. It's very fragmented. Yeah, well, running kids, running kids to piano and soccer and baseball and whatever. I was in the parking lot waiting for them to come out of whatever building they were in or whatever, and I'd work on the story. So I only had time to write like literally one paragraph at a time. And I had this, yeah, and I've got this whole process where like um, I could pull the, pull the notes into my computer, sync it up, and then it come into Scrivener, and then I could export in Scrivener in an ebook format and then read it on my phone again, make edits, annotations, and all that, sync the ebook up to the thing on my phone, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. It's just kind of a perpetual loop. And that's kind of how the story came to be. And actually, um, the fragmented nature of the story worked well with what the story is about. It's, you know, this this woman watching her husband spiral and uh, di disappear into this dissociated fugue, you know. It's just, so it really worked well, but I had to work on transitions a lot. Um, that story got rejected a lot of times. And then when I finally let it rest for a while, I came back to it and I decided, okay, I'll help the reader here or do my best, you know, you just have to do that. And uh, 
I smoothed out the transitions and I could move some of the sections around a little bit because they're small. Um, each component was like its own piece of flash. And um, and finally, when I got to where I could read it aloud and it seemed to really flow well. And that's when I won the Montana Prize. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's the story that won the Rick Bass Award. That is yeah, was, fascinating. Such a fascinating <laughs> story. I was, I had actually, one of my questions was about how that one in particular came to be. Because it, it was, it's weird. What it seemed to me like was looking through a a glass window that had been broken and then glued together so you could still see you could still see through the window the glass was one piece but there were cracks and so there were these little jagged places where the the picture wasn't clear and i thought that was fascinating i it's like how did you do that? um so like you so you literally wrote it in fragmented pieces of time that yeah that was awesome that's probably my favorite story in the wow, thank you yeah yeah it's um that actually and the characters one thing that helped was all of those characters are in other stories um i don't know if they're in this book though but i've got like four other stories with uh like all the characters were in it oh in other collections yeah. okay yep. and they've all got and they've all got their own story yep oh wow um okay but, but this one but this one there's something about the discord the story that made it fit well you know it's like you're asking like how do you come about um assembling a collection of stories and i i kind of wonder i mean do do american students do we because i'm not an english major i'm not an english student I, I work in computer science um and even though i you know i studied in linguistics i've mastered in spanish i paid the bills of computer science and make making software work better for people so they could think about other things than getting it to work. Um, but there is a connection between linguistics linguistics and computer science. There's a connection. There's anyway, um, so uh when when putting all these together, you know, it's like it's a collection's kind of this this entity, kind of like a, a musical album is too. So it's like, you know, the try to imagine just listening to Dear Prudence on the Beatles White album and skipping all the rest. You know? Uh, it's kind of hard so the story kind of felt like with the dissonance it just kind of went well with it uh with the others but like uh i prefer you in spanish is a story that's very i call it a covid story some of the stories you talk about covid and it deals with it directly but um i call that a covid story just because it's i wrote it during covid and i wrote it as kind of a mental escape from what was going on uh it was 35 below zero here uh with no vaccine no cure no treatment there's a lot of angry people around you know just it was a really hard thousands of people were dying every day it was really bad right uh dying of covid every day and so i just kind of had to get away if nowhere else but in my brain for a while and part of that escape was to write a totally different style story too so that narrative is very removed, very, it's almost like a fairy tale. In fact, you don't even get the names of the characters, you know, and it's kind of timeless. I think I kind of made it so that, except for the fact they're riding around on trains, I, you really, it could be 1940, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, there, yeah, there's, um, I, I, I felt the presence of the pandemic in, uh, in some of these stories. And so that was, one of the things that I had uh, noted, there's a, um, there's, uh, 
there's this one passage that I noted in uh, the story Goat Milk that says toilet paper became the joke and the symbol of the last pandemic. Panic purchases and hoarding resulted in overwhelmed and incapacitated supply chains. This time, the supply chain problem has gotten head, ahead of the supply chain itself. There are regular shortages of everything, from beer to bacon to insulin to shoelaces, because there is no gasoline for transport, because the oil company ceased production when the price of oil crashed, when people stopped driving, because of the global lockdowns. That really seemed to capture a lot of the, the uh, like the global impact. There were obviously personal impacts of of the pandemic, but that seemed to be kind of the just the the pall hanging over. Um, didn't really seem to matter where you were in the country. That really captured because I I went through COVID in Seattle and um, which is quite far from Wisconsin, um, and in terms of weather, in terms of um, very many other things, uh, but. This this also captured my experience, and uh, and I read it to a friend too, and who uh, was in Texas, and uh, another friend who was in Florida. And so, even though um, there, you know, various states seem to do different things uh, in response, this seemed to capture quite quite a common um, COVID experience. So I I wanted to ask, how, when were these stories? written um some of them were written during covid were they all kind of around this the this kind of recent time um so that story goat milk was actually written before the pandemic um it was supposed to be a tip of the hat to ray bradbury uh fahrenheit 451 and i had this idea of just, just kind of extending you know where, where that story goes with burning things like the pandemic is so bad he's got to burn everything that the person that has ever come in contact with and the, uh, most of that story is still there uh full disclosure though yeah the toilet paper thing i added during the pandemic and then i submitted the story during the pandemic so that wasn't weird i had people reading the story about what they exactly what they were going through so that was kind of odd but yeah what, what you said about the global uh, effect um yeah the the people i work with are located um from india all the way across moving east or west across the planet through Europe, South America, North America, and Thailand. So all over the world, and I, we'd have these Zoom meetings, and they have all these little rectangles, like 12, 12 of them, and we all looked exactly the same. It didn't matter where we were from, because everyone was sheltering in place. This guy in Italy looked just like the, the woman in Boston. Looked at, there was the one in Seattle, you know, and... Because we all had to do the same thing. It was like one big common thing that we had. It was like, we really are all breathing the same air here, you know, and we just had to figure it out and do what we had to do. We knew, I think we knew it wouldn't be too long. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know forever. It's never going to be normal again, you know, but but uh, it's definitely better than it was. I don't worry about my kids nearly as much as I had before, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the experiences that's so, yes, when we all got on Zoom and we're all, you know, in our little boxes, uh, little Brady Bunch boxes, uh, yep. <laughs> we all kind of looked, I was thinking that too, but it was so interesting. I was like, this is the first time I can be talking to somebody in Australia and Ireland at the same time. And I'm kind of in the middle in Seattle here. And yet you also capture this feeling um, that I think 
to, to me in my experience seemed pretty global as well, which was this uh, experience of, of isolation that seemed to be heightened. I know that people experienced isolation before COVID. We were talking about this epidemic of loneliness before the pandemic, um, but there's this uh, line in uh, Randy Koenig's Very Large Mouse. I hope I'm saying that name right. Koenig? Koenig? Um, Koenig, okay. Uh, that goes, a, a weak 40-watt glow sprawled across the room at a speed that seemed far less than I normally expected the speed of light to travel. I had to think about the possibility, that possibility for a moment, and how the extreme isolation of the pandemic had distorted so many of my senses and perceptions. That captured something that I hadn't put words to, but totally felt especially for the first year, I think. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk more about like the warping sense that isolation has um, on, on our senses and our relationships and our perception of reality. Right. You know, that, that's, so that story was written about um, a gentleman going to a gathering, the first one ever since the first shots came out. So everyone got vaccinated and people felt comfortable kind of being inside with the windows open there was a while there it seemed like it was about six months or six weeks there we felt like okay yay you know um but there's also just that indication that things are never going to be the same the impact of that lockdown on some people it's just so profound i don't think they'll ever come out of it you know and and that's what he was saying he's trying they're trying to be normal again but just clicking on a light bulb just the sensation of that light spreading across the room and then what do you see is when it does cross the room. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stories, um, you know, there's like this plausible magic to them where it's, you know, you're kind of just asked to believe in one thing. That's probably not in your the continuum of your reality. It's in this parallel place that you access through this little rip in the space time and you step in there and, and everyone's cool with it. You know, it's not quite magical realism. Well, you know, of course, the man has enormous wings. He was born with them. It's not quite like that, but it's, you know, uh, just this oddity that everyone's that's just there for all. And that's kind of the space that I feel that it, it also, as absurd as that story is, that Randy Coney's very large mouse, um, I'm drawing attention, I think, to, you know, all the stuff that people are going through and just the urge to be normal. I think the word normal is in there, like, I don't even know, 10 times. And it's a 2000 word story, you know, so. It was definitely, I felt like this one, um, that there is, cause there is that ask, I think in, in each of these stories for something that is not actually in, not reality, but you're invited to believe it in the story. And I caught on as soon as I started reading, uh, I think this was actually the first uh, place I came across it in the collection of uh, like, oh, the perceptions are there's something skewed in each of these stories that's not it's not like fantasy it's not even quite magical realism but it's not actual what i remember to be reality and yet it wasn't that hard to go along with it like of course there's a life-size mouse talking back to the person in the base of course it doesn't everybody have one of those um <laughs> What I mean, or like wanting to experience that, like, yeah, that'd be cool to talk to this like chill mouse. That's just like, totally. I, that was probably one of my, also one of my favorites. I, I have a hard time picking favorites, 
But I realized as I was going through the collection that it's like, this is actually the, what, what COVID did to reality too, is it's skewed now um, in a lot of ways permanently. And uh, I, I was kind of curious about how your experience was with that with um, with children. I don't know how old your your kids are. That's but that seems that seems to me there's a universal experience of COVID, and then there's that one in particular of a parent of children, uh, and not just worrying about yourself, but now worrying about the children and kind of how that experience contributed to how reality got skewed uh, for you in this whole. Um, last, I guess, three years, a little more than three years now. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, we're all kind of living on a bent timeline, I think, you know, and it, I'm not sure when the bend occurred. I think it, I, for me, it happened before COVID was a thing, but right before, you know, and um, yeah, good question, because for the kids, this is just their, this is their timeline. This isn't the timeline for us, like we're Biff goes back and gives himself the, the sports almanac and then we get to live on the one where he keeps it you know that's for a while it felt like that's the timeline we were living in but you know so we tried to bend it back and correct it but we may have hyper corrected i don't know but uh for the kids this is normal well yeah, of course we log into class we have distance learning all like twice a week of course we do this of course you know uh, we wear a mask. My kids are, um, let's see, I'm trying to think now, time flies, right? So third and fourth grade when that happened, and then I had one in high school, one in middle school. I had one, I had one in elementary, one in middle school, one in high school. Oh, wow, you went through so the whole experience. Yeah, so it was all very, you know, really hard, you know, uh, just in terms of the day-to-day, -day, like keeping up with school was, was weird, but because um, the teachers weren't prepared either. Yeah. I think the, the students were probably more ready for this than the teachers were. And it's not a knock on the teachers. They just didn't have the training or the capability. Um, but yeah, as a parent, you know, you worry about your children's safety and security. Um, you know, I, I have a child with diabetes. Um, other kids have autoimmune disorders. You can't let something like that get into your home. So we were like extra lockdown-y. And, um, you know, we left the house like once every 10 days. You know, the experience of a man in Randy Koenig's very large mouth is probably kind of pretty close to the reality of a lot of people in this neighborhood with little kids. You know, we have a really busy elementary school. It's a real busy, loud neighborhood when it comes to uh, sharp voices and screaming kids and stuff. It's great, you know. That's just how it is, you know, and the neighborhoods are all over. And, uh, but it was, yeah, we didn't see it, you know, we'd wave across the street and that's about it. Yeah, that's, and that's a really good point too that for kids especially the younger they are they don't know any different they don't know that life was like for a long time drastically different and it kind of made me think of you know I, I think my generation might be the last the older I'm an older millennial the geriatric millennial I guess they call us now um <laughs> I'm sorry. So that's cool. Um, I'm just Gen, I'm just Gen X, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think they used to call the older millennials like Xennials or something. Um, but yeah, ger we're geriatric millennials now, so that's nice. Um, that's uh, I don't know who decided that, but I'm pretty sure if there if that was put to a vote, it would be uh, Geritol for millennials, right? <laughs> 
Right. And I think one of the reasons that we were labeled that way is because of technology and how it's, I think it's split the millennial generation. So us geriatric millennials, we're the last generation that had a childhood similar to our parents where we would be outside playing until the streetlights came on and we didn't really get a lot of screen. Screen time was not a thing. Like when I was a kid, we had a TV, but um, I remember when AOL came out. Um, I will never forget that dial-up sound. Um, and then just the the drastic speed of development because of technology. And so it's interesting. I, I wonder how, because you work in the technology sphere or space, or um, if it's its own separate space anymore, uh, how, how, what your perspective on like the, the, just the speed of information and how, how accessing information during COVID impacted the perception of reality that we all were like living on this alternate sort of timeline now? Like what role does technology have in that, do you think? Um, yeah, well, first of all, as far as being uh, one of the last millennials to experience things like your parents did, yeah, we have this conversation in our neighborhood all the time. You know, we used to put, grab a baseball glove and a sack lunch. We were gone until supper. You know, and in one of the stories, that's what the kid does. He gets on his bike, goes to the ball field, he doesn't come home until he's hungry. That's just how it was. And um, we're trying to raise our kids like that, but it's it's really hard. Um, you are the generation we call in software um, digital immigrants. So you may remember, you may remember like a dial-up phone in your house or a phone with a cord on it. Uh, the arrival of a microwave oven may have been a thing, right? Um, absolutely the internet coming in. Well, for these kids, the internet's just like oxygen. You go somewhere, um, they're just shocked if it's not there, right? So, yeah, we, we about 2013, 2014, we crossed that threshold of uh, more data, more information coming through phones than through computers like we're talking to each other on now. So more people getting their information that way, including your younger millennials. And, uh, but in, in so far as like what the technology, what impacted that during the pandemic, it was actually a really great thing for my writing. Um, I was able to attend workshops I'd have never been able to leave home for. I could not have gone to Portland for four days to go to Tin House. Not that Tin House would accept me, but you know what I mean? Uh, believe me, I've tried. Yes, <laughs> me too. Yes. They, they always say thank you and very yes. nicely. Yeah. They're very polite. Yes. Yes, they are. They're very nice. Um, but whatever. You know, I couldn't go to Portland. I couldn't go to Brooklyn. I couldn't go to Austin. But I took workshops in all those places, sitting in my basement at minus 30. And they were great. You know, uh, actually, one of the Brooklyn workshops uh, where I got that term, uh, plausible magic, that you're referring to. So we read, like, Alex Kleeman and um, even, like, Camille Bardas, some of her stories. It's the way she drives the story. Alex Cleveland's kind of just a little out there, but very real, right? And super smart writing, all of them. Um, but yeah, in terms of that, the, the the whole information thing was is a good thing to have during a pandemic, for sure. So yeah. writing, anyway. That is a really good point. So many opportunities. While the world seemed to close down, there were so many opportunities that opened up solely because of technology. That's, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And the relationships I maintain now, you know, I went to AWP and I, I 
all these people I'd met during COVID, you yeah. know, I could finally meet them in real life, you know. Yes, yes, that was quite, I, was quite cool. I loved that because, yeah, the AWP was in Seattle, which is, um, I just took the train up and <laughs> right out with people that I'd been like, oh, we've been in a writer's group for three years together. We've never met in person, but it feels like we've known each other a really long time. That's one of the things I feel like COVID did was it's, it both stretched and warped the time. So it was like, was this really, was this really three years that we've been doing this, that we've been getting on zoom and doing writing work together? That just seems there is like, a, there is a date uh, counter uh, online somewhere. It's oh, like today's okay. COVID, COVID date. Oh, so it's like, that's yeah. That makes sense. Well, March, whatever, March, whatever, 2020, you know, but it's like March 726th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, and I, I kind of perceive time a little differently than some people anyway, I think, because one of the things in my bio is sometimes it's there. It's like Steve gets up on Monday morning and goes to bed later that day on Saturday night. And that's kind of how my stories go. Because everything kind of elongates and stretches, but for me, it's just kind of all part of one bigger process. And it's just broken up by these maps, you know, and uh, if that. But um, there is something to that, though, because I'll resume a conversation with people I haven't seen in years. And they're like, dude, that was like four years ago. Like, yeah, so what do you think? You know, I mean, you know, we're talking about this. this so you, so then you remember what I'm talking about. Good. You know, so you got to relive the thing. But, but that's kind of goes back to just picking up and maintaining threads and never letting go of them that was yes i experienced that in several of, of the stories where it was there was this sort of uh it was a fascinating relationship to time where it seemed like there there was this part of you know this whole larger time either time is an illusion or it's one whole continuous piece and then oh, but we also have to follow these arbitrary rules that other people set. So, okay, I, I guess it's the next day. I guess we'll call it the next day. Um, and having this these threads coming through and just picking up right where the last one left off. Um, and that uh, that's one of the things I was referring to when, it's, when um, I said that the reading of the story taught me how to read it uh, was, oh yeah, we just pick right back up where we left off um, in these in these stories, which was a pretty great mirror to sometimes what time asks of us, what we sort of have to do anyway. Um, like, yeah, the world stopped for three years and also kids still have to go to school. S developmental milestones still have to happen. Food still has to get to the house somehow. Uh, you know, bills still need to be paid. Adulting, which is something my avocado toast generation coined, um, still has to happen and so we don't we don't actually shut down everything we can only there's only so much we can lock down um and time it turns out is not one of those things uh as much as some of us <laughs> might wish um i uh i thought that too there was a, a very interesting um thread about uh, family in here from the story yard mary it says hate is an easy thing when it comes to family, I was like, that that line stopped me, and I was like, this is so true. This is so true. It was immediately recognizable, and also so sad 
at the same time. Like, cause it's like, we think, oh yeah, in the internet generation, hate is so easy with strangers. You know, you'd say stuff on the internet, never say to somebody's face, but hate is an easy thing when it comes to family. And I wonder if you, why, why, why is that? Like, where, where does that come from? Um, well, the, the kid in that story, the narrator is pretty young and I, I, I like younger narrators anyway. Um, not all of my narrators are young, but they give you the opportunity to, to work without a filter to some extent. Um, and it helps, you know, raising three young boys, they just say stuff. Um, and it's pretty easy to see light through their eyes sometimes when they wear their heart on their sleeve. Um, but they have a different way of seeing things, you know. And um, So you add to that a person, you know, a younger narrator who's pretty creative, you know, intelligent, um, and has a lot of questions about these systems that adults have set up for themselves and for everyone and why it works. And you have the opportunity for some really great dialogue and observation and uh, turns of phrase. And yeah, she just said that. I, I'm trying to remember what she's talking about hating, but she has a weird relationship anyway with her. Her dad kind of lives all over and she has these other sisters that also have her dad you know, but not the same moms. And so it's a story that kind of hits all the bases about a broken system, about socioeconomic class, religion, kind of covers them on as borderline horror. Um, I got pulled into the Horror Writers Association and I said, I don't write horror. And they said, yeah, these are these are horror stories. Right. <laughs> it's not it all might fun. be horror light, but they are, yeah. Yeah. And he said, there's just a way that you treat the mundane that um there's just always this tension and that's all they're looking for and i do like writing you know making stories something out of nothing you know a guy goes into a coffee shop orders coffee and a slice of pie and it seems pretty uh innocuous you know um but you know it's pretty prosaic but there's something poetic about it too and then that's what up to you to make it you know happen but so i kind of use those settings as the basis for a lot of the things but if it if it does explore a bigger concept I mean, really, um, yeah, Yardner is a, a different story, but yeah, hate is easier when it comes to family. <laughs> I think, I think, I, I think that the, the, the emotions for family are just more raw. And this girl is just saying it. You know, you may want to keep that friend or that best friend. You never know. When in fact, it's reverse. You know, your parents tell you, um, you know, or the adults in your life tell you, you know, you can pick your friends. You can't pick your family. Totally stuck with your family, you know. Maybe I was also, yeah, I may have also been channeling some of the anxiety of holiday get-togethers, you know, or a lot of, a lot of subtext. Yes. In a holiday gathering. <laughs> you know? So much, so much. Yes, I think the the borderline horror thing was really coming through, and it is in how you treat. Just a, as we talked about earlier, the just a, a moment, like a just a noticing of something that is totally just an innocent yeah this happens every day kind of thing but there's the rumination when you combine that with the rumination of the characters i loved that most of your that most of your narrators were younger narrators because it wasn't um i think there there was there was a couple where i was like is this an unreliable narrator and then the fact that i didn't know was fascinating it's like because yeah kids kids stay they're direct they stay that they say what they're thinking and they're also not 
totally reliable just because they're kids. And so this is the way they see things, mm -hmm. but their reality is a little bit skewed too. And it made me think of like, I've really never thought about kids as being unreliable narrators before. That is a fascinating well, you know, they, thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, they think they got it right. They think they yeah. got it right. Totally. Yeah. A lot of times. And so it's, that's part of the, it's almost earnest the way it comes across because they're, they're convinced they got whatever it is right and then they just move on there are almost no consequences for the things they say or what they observe they just ugh. oh oh to be that free again <laughs> i'm wondering when when did that stop because i'm like was there a moment where i crossed the threshold from i'm a kid i'm going to say whatever i think and it's just un that's just unconscious it doesn't occur to me that there's another option to the filter well, i'm not sure in the case of my mother uh, she she entered it again as she got older. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I, there must be some part of your life where you're, you're just beaten down enough with responsibility or, you know, like a friend of mine says, you can say anything you want on your last day of work. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that is that is true. Yeah, it's it does, because I think it's, as you were saying, there's not really consequences. Kids just say, they just say stuff, there's not consequences. But as in a certain stage of adulthood, there there are consequences um well and and all along they're kind of keeping adults in check right because you're you're, you're quite as an adult reader you're questioning yourself you know hey, my kid blurred something inappropriate today i'm like what are you saying before you say it you know uh they're just this constant they're they're monitoring even though they don't know it yes they are that's oh, when my sister became a mom two years ago uh she was like, oh, I I really thought I was a much better person than I am, as it turns out. <laughs> it's like, it's like, um, yeah, I've heard most of my friends who have become parents say that exact thing. They're like little mirrors just walking around, following you. Um, which I I guess that's beneficial if you're interested in self-growth, but always humbling. <laughs> always humbling. Um, one of the the uh scenes that has stuck with me this this character in particular is one of the ones i mentioned that kept popping up in my um memory uh, well after i finished reading the collection was in exile um this the story is called exile and it's uh it features a young boy who um he's in his own little world practicing baseball and he's getting harassed by these kids and then he comes across a homeless man and he is so fixated on this person's backstory and is just like, what? This person had a wife? The wife had a name? And it's like time completely stops. It's like almost just time just gets ripped open. And it's like that that character, both of the characters, but particularly the man, the homeless man, came up, kept coming up um, as I'm walking around, you know, going to this or that thing. And uh, because I live in Seattle, or pretty much any major city at this point in America, um, you will encounter people who are homeless. I was a social worker in training for a while. And I was like, this man could have been one of my clients. This, and I'm kind of wondering like, is this the guy I, I would see a, a man on the streets uh, in like downtown or something? And I would wonder, be like, did you, are you from exile? Did you escape? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I so wonder, they, they that are, felt very real. That that man felt very real to me. Well, to the kid, he just appears out of nowhere. And that's one thing I was. It's it's a touchy topic, right? Because it's a real problem. Um, 
and some editors did not like the story because uh, they didn't believe that it happens in a rural setting. And it absolutely happens in a rural setting. Good luck. Good luck being homeless in a town of 5,000 people um, or not having the means, especially in wintertime. You know, and that's what this kid realized. And my God, these people, they're not camping. That's where they live, you know. But through his eyes, and that's part of this thing that you're expected to believe, this, you know, he mentions this man slips through a crack in the dark, kind of like um, he can move a penny across the table of his thoughts. Kind of a thing, and uh, but he's but then he sees him as a person fire. Like, wow, he had a wife, she had a name, you know. And um, so I kind of this was that part of the that exchange is in response to the editors totally discrediting the fact that we could have such a thing in a place like Wisconsin. That's you unbelievable know? to me that they wouldn't. Wow. Well, they have a. They have a certain perception about what life must be like out here, and it's apparently coming to them through their TV screens. But the reality is, yeah, it's the real problem everywhere. But it's not just in Seattle or San Francisco, you know. Hey, well, and even I like Seattle. I wouldn't say is a major major city, but it feels like it. But I even I was like, oh yeah, of course, any major city in America, you will see this this giant problem. Um, that's just. I mean, it was a problem before COVID. COVID definitely made it worse. Um, and, but yeah, it was, it was, especially in Seattle, lived, lived here 17 years and watched it get uh, rapidly worse. Um, but yeah, even I was just talking about the cities and um, I, I, I should know. I was, I, I studied social work. I should know. We talked about the urban rural divide as being perhaps the largest divide still in America. We talk about, oh, it's so polarized. Everybody's, uh, it's so divided. Everybody's so um, on one side or the other. And we don't ever hear about the urban rural divide in quite that way. It's always like, you know, this side of politics or this side of politics. Are you on this side or this side of this issue? And we don't ever talk about that divide, which is probably the biggest and most misunderstood one, because as, yeah, there, there are editors of journals who don't believe that what's actually happening is 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 real in in like oh of course there wouldn't be this this kind of thing that's just a major city problem um or maybe yeah. a southern problem uh, you know it's just to them maybe it's because you know i put the story in the middle of january in wisconsin so it's below zero after hockey and it's dark it's always darker right winter and uh, yeah, th that was shocking to me. So I, I did add a little extra to that to kind of give this man more of an identity. But initially, he was more of a um, a little bit. There's a little bit more magic involved because the man literally disappears, kind of like it does now. He just disappears when the boy's father pulls up. And uh, but yeah, there's that moment where they share this mutual exile, which uh, which I like. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, when I read the disappearance part, um, I read it as, okay, an adult is coming and we adults invisibilize and ignore mm -hmm. homeless people. But so the kid I, sees it. Yeah, the kids, I'm like, oh, kids will see it. They'll point it out just like what we were talking about. Kids will say, they'll just point out anything and adults try to pretend stuff is not there, doesn't happen. Kids don't let them do that. And so when the when the homeless man disappears, when the when the father pulls up, I thought that was commentary on how adults 
just walk right by. Uh, and it's hard to do that in Seattle because there's rows and rows and rows and rows of tents and you cannot ignore homeless people anymore. But for a while, if you wanted to, you could avert your eyes. And I just I was like, yeah, that that interplay between the the homeless man disappearing when the man when the adult shows up and the kids still like engaging in just asking him questions, talking to him, just being really direct. It was like, it was in, in a way it was pretty convicting for me uh, as someone who was like, okay, when, when was the last time I walked by a homeless person it was probably yesterday because I walked outside. Um, did I acknowledge their presence at all? Or am I a, an adult that invisibilizes homeless people? So <laughs> I took it as comment. Well, oh, it was also literal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've had that comment from other people too they say they, they they've seen this man walking around but yeah and in the story i just opened it up quick to look at it um i've written so many versions of how this one ends but um yeah you know his father says to him you're talking to a stranger well he works at clems he had a wife her name was lucy you know this guy that that's how the story went you know this guy he's trying to save up enough money so he can like get a place what's the weather breaks and uh so and then his father goes into this rant and he kind of invisibilizes his father. He just totally tunes him out. And he's looking out the window where that guy had yeah. been. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the story, I think, probably that haunted me the most. I mean, in, in the good way of just like, will I see that that man? Will I actually see him or will I invisibilize him? Because I believe I've seen him on the streets in my city i believe it that he's crawled out of that story where he where he invisible where he disappeared to he f went through uh rip in the space-time continuum and is now in seattle <laughs> i'm pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> well, i hope he's happy there yeah it's, it's warmer warm. there i know that <laughs> it's definitely warmer yep it only gets to be 30 not 30 below so there's that except for last december but anyway um okay well i have uh, so many more questions. We did not get to all of them, as I predicted. Um, so I will just, uh, let's see, we're coming up on time here. I have just a few, uh, let's see, we'll have to pick, let me see, I'll pick three more. Um, there's one, uh, it was interesting, too, about, we had talked about uh, the use of language, and then you also have a degree in Spanish. So I'm curious about um what led you to a degree in spanish and then how different language different languages and differences in language because that came up throughout the collection too like i prefer you in spanish um was <laughs> that really did feel like a sort of uh most of the the stories are very interior that one felt like it was a not a, not a not a break in a bad way but kind of like a here's an alternate reality for us to breathe for a little bit um it's like what so what do what what can only be said in like a native tongue? What's better said in a learned language? That story really played with that. And then what can't be said in language at all? Yeah. And you've got more questions after this one. That's this is a big one. Um, <laughs> so maybe not. Maybe yeah, this is the end. <laughs> I I grew up with a shortwave radio. So I I developed a pretty keen interest in language. I think I was I was always pretty interested in how language worked anyway as a kid. I just didn't have vocabulary to say it like that. Um, and I did live for a while in Spain and I lived in Argentina for a couple of years. I just lived and worked there 
And um, so, but one thing I noticed is um, people who are really bilingual, like the characters in this story, um, she accuses the boy of having a, a totally different personality when he speaks in English versus in Spanish. And to me, that always fascinated me, just how people's body language change. Um, and I do have a memory of, I met a person in, in Spain. Um, she was from Massachusetts. And uh, her family was Spanish, but they had moved there when she was, to Massachusetts when she was a little girl. So she could interchange um, between the two. Didn't occur to her, she was switching. And um, I met her in English one night. And then um, I was at this thing for the university the next night, and she was even dressed differently, and she was speaking Spanish. And then... Um, I said hello and I didn't I had no idea who she was. And because she looked so different, she was acting so differently. And uh she said, We met last night. She just switched to English. She said, We met last night, and her whole body changed the way she stood, the way she talked. I mean, she had been wearing, you know, like the jeans and t shirt she had the night before. She looked like on an American, but she was wearing a Spanish dress and she had uh, you know, the shoes and she was really done up. And um, and she says you have a poor memory, and I said I'm sorry, I met you in English. I don't, <laughs> I didn't have any context for what you're giving me here, you know. And I don't think she was insulted, but she just couldn't understand what I meant. And I'm like, well, there's something to it. And I've always remembered that, you know. There's, to me, there's just the the body language, the gesture, everything, the way, the perception of time. Um, Everything is different in different cultures. Um, I lived in Brazil for a while too, about a year, and um, you know, just this notion of time there. You ask anybody on the street what time it is, and you'll get. It depends what part of Brazil. So northeastern Brazil, um, it's a pretty laid back place. Uh, like right now here, it's six o two, but you would get, you know, anywhere between five fifty to ah, it's about six thirty, and no one would really. It just didn't seem to matter, you know, these little towns I was in. And even in Bahia, it's a couple of million people. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, language really seems to form how we think. It's all part of the, yeah, and it's all part of the culture. And I think maybe when you slip into speaking that language, you culturally change too. Yeah. But I've noticed too, and I speak in Spanish, I use different body gestures, different hand gestures, and mm-hmm. things like that, you know. Totally. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, when I learned Spanish, we had someone who who was a native English speaker but learned Spanish well enough to teach it. And I didn't learn Spanish very well until my third year when someone from Cuba was our teacher. And that's when I felt like I actually got the language because she uh well first of all she refused to speak to us in English, so there's that. And then but she was it was just she embodied it so much more than just here are the parts of an airplane which I still remember, but have never used. I've been to Mexico eight times. <laughs> never used these words. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, yeah, languages, language are the, languages are their own characters, it seems. Um, it's a little bit like meeting somebody, like I've, I've joked 2D people and 3D people are totally different. Uh, when I met the leader of my writer's group who I'd been at, uh, attending on Zoom for three years, never in person, and then at the AWP in Seattle uh, in March earlier this year, um, I didn't recognize her. And then because 3D, three dimensional people look so different. And it's like technology, even though we were speaking the same language, it's almost like technology as a mediator sort of changes our 
way of communicating. And her voice even sounded different because I was listening to her through a computer for three years and then now with no no mediator. Um, and we we were even speaking the same language. So so that was, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, I can't believe how tall you are and, and things like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. But yeah, I think language is pretty closely tied to people's identity. And so when, you know, somebody switches language like a Puerto Rican, you know, they they may feel more Puerto Rican when they're speaking Spanish. I can't speak for all Puerto Rican, but you know, so um, same with, uh, I know some bilingual Argentines too, and they definitely uh, change their identity when they talk. They, they may not, it's subconscious, which is what makes it authentic. Right. And it's so interesting how closely language is tied to identity when your native language is chosen for you. That isn't a thing you choose. That's the thing your your parents choose. And yet it is so, that's probably one of the most defining parts of your identity. Well, even, you know, in that story, I prefer you in Spanish. The reason she doesn't like him in English, she doesn't like his accent. It's not so much, it's not so much um, that his, his hand gestures are different or anything like that. But she does say you're more interesting in Spanish because you talk about different things. You talk about art and politics and socioeconomics and stuff. But uh, she just didn't like his accent because I can't stand it. <laughs> Poor guy. He's out. He's out there somewhere. Yeah, they have a bunch of they have a bunch of stories. Those two. I oh, that's so good to hear. I liked them too. I kept thinking about them. Also, <laughs> like I wonder where the they boy, are. The boy and the girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, yes. Um, okay, well, this is just purely for, for me as a writer, from one writer to another. You say in the acknowledgments that writing is hard, and that's another one of those lines that I recognized immediately, and I wanted to know, because uh, I I was like, yeah, and this is why, and my idea of why it's hard populated in my head, but I wonder, when you wrote writing is hard, what, what were you, what were, what was in your mind? Like, what makes writing hard? Uh, it depends what you're trying to crack open. I think, you know, my book is it's kind of an invitation to the reader to to see life through, you know, a bit of a bent lens or a cracked lens, like you say, a fragmented mirror. Um, and, and that's cool. You can run with it, whatever it is that you're trying to work through and get it out there, but it's still got to be readable. And there's a certain vulnerability you establish as well when you plunk a book out. You're not sure how people are going to read. Um, I'd have had enough for my degrees. I've had enough literary theory um, and interpretation of text and all that. You really cannot write about somebody tying their shoes without offending somebody or making a statement about uh, you know, the person's background or anything like that. But it's just hard to write well and write cleanly and uh, the process itself can be difficult. Um, you know, just, you know, the story I prefer in Spanish was one, I pretty much wrote the whole thing in one night, but it took months to edit it. Other stories, sometimes Greek, took me years to write. I kept getting interrupted, I'd get another story idea that would fork off into, and it blossom into these other things. I got a, another collection that's kind of parallel to this one, not thematically, but that's why I wrote it all. So I've always got about four or five stories going at once, and they're not all entirely related. Um, but it's just a difficult and time-consuming process. But you know, nobody just falls out of bed and writes a story. You may have you may have an ability for it, but that's what the perception can be: that oh, she just wrote a novel. Well, there's a woman in town who just 
published this novel. It's doing really well. And nobody knew. She's a bartender. Well, yeah, she has an MFA. She's been studying this for 20 years. This is what she's been doing and paying the bills by pouring your drinks. She just, you never asked her what she, you know, that's another thing. But, um, but it's, it's hard. It's like any other talent, you know, Joshua Bell didn't just pick up a violin and, you know, start playing to the packed house and the Kennedy Center. It just didn't happen. Leo Messi, same thing. You know, he worked all his life to become the greatest in the world. Yeah. So the same goes for writing. After 20 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, in, I'm glad. I'm glad that re- no one's mentioned that yet. I'm glad that resonated with you. <laughs> it really, it really did, and it's yeah. All those things I thought of, like pr- the process is difficult. There's the I'm not as good of a I'm not as good enough of a writer as I want to be to do the things I want to do. Um, one of the things I have wrestled with and have asked um, other other guests too is, do you think one of the things that makes writing difficult the fact that it's a solitary act, or do you think that it's even a solitary act? Uh, you know, there's a wonderful world uh, book called Windows on the World. Um, Mateo, I'll send you a link. Sure, yeah. Uh, the call was for people to take a photograph of where they write from. And then he had a, a line artist make all these drawings of quick, almost like the same person drew. So it was people from Thailand and even like T.C. Boyle got a paragraph. In. So they said, write a couple paragraphs about what it looks like what, what your writing desk like and that's kind of the whole thing is it isolating are you open in the world are you in a coffee house um yeah I, I, sometimes i'm writing a story in a coffee house and i'm experiencing i i really feel my characters feel i mean i choke up when i write i choke up when i read out loud um you know the protagonist in sometimes creek none of that what happened in that story is real i made the whole thing up um but still the characters follow me around they're in my head uh, and I really feel what they feel while I'm writing. And so if you're doing that, if you're doing that in a coffee house while you're writing, it could, oh, Steve's having a bad meeting or something's going on, you know, like, oh, yeah, my work, man, it's just a real shitty deal. Yeah, but it, it is isolating because what it comes down to it, it is like uh, the woman at Wisconsin Writers Institute says, it's button chair time. You, you gotta, you gotta do it. And, um, it's writing around interruptions and um i was talking to a younger group of writers and they they asked about the book and how how i find time to write i held up the book and i said you're not going to like this answer but uh most of it was written between five and seven in the morning or between 11 and one at night you know sometimes both yeah or in those 15 minutes that you have while you're waiting for kids or whatever i think tony morrison said she wrote all of her novels in 15 minute chunks she had no no long periods of time ever which in some ways helped me because I was like, and she she won the Pulitzer, so it can be done. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she. Yeah, it's, I think she had an ability to to keep the focus slow. I, I think she's able to come back and just pick up where she left. I don't think everyone can do that. Um, some people get in the groove, or maybe she really found her voice. I know that for me, when, when I really find the voice of the story, it's I could set it down. For, I could set it down for a couple of years and just come right back to it. Um, but usually it just comes out once once I get that narrative voice or the two perspectives I'm working on, uh, it it comes out pretty well. Then it's just a matter of, um, you know, writers groups or workshops or however many times you're going to get it rejected before you ask for professional help. 
or or not, you know. Put it in your collection. No one will publish it. Put it in your collection, you know. <laughs> that's yep. That's how I've snuck some poems out there. Yep. <laughs> For totally. <sure>. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Okay. Well. Yeah. Oh, well, by the way, you mentioned you mentioned that the stories do read like poetry, and I appreciate that. Some people have called they have called it poetic prose, and I kind of go, "Thank you so much." Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's a great compliment. Yeah, because they're they're on that that sort of edge that poets walk a lot too um and it just it's i think it's part of the 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 plausible magic the not quite magical realism but the not quite reality is to me that's very poetic um not that that's how all poems are but yeah that's as a poet i appreciate pose that is um poetry adjacent (laughs) i'll say there you go um, so that's my Steve Fox's fiction is poetry adjacent. That's what yes. we'll call it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, for the final question, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wish I would have? Oh, uh, boy. Um, well, I'll skip the major influences. Um, although somebody just asked me, who are you, what writers are your major influences? And I kind of rattle off a list, and it's all women who are still alive right now, apart from Ray Bradbury. Yeah, so like Karen Russell, Katie Link, Sabrina Orr, Mark, um, even like Margaret Atwood, you know, and it, it's those are the names that came out, and, and they're all funny. You know, like Karen Russell's stories would be terrifying if they weren't so hilarious. You know, yeah, um, she's gotta be funny if she, so she doesn't yeah. give us all nightmares. Right, right, and she also writes about these weird things that are kind of. She actually kind of made it, um, maybe realize that it's, it is possible to write stories that way. Uh, the other thing, though, is like the research involved in my stories. Um, I do look, I do look stuff up. I think you have to kind of get some things right. But like, so like, I did do some reading about bats, and there are a lot of different kinds of bats because there's a couple paragraphs there where you get a lot of information about bats, and hopefully it's not too heavy handed. But you know, like, I still don't know like how long bats live. Or anything, so it's not like I became, you know, too much in the weeds and on those the bats. But yeah, twenty five percent of all mammals on Earth are bats. It's, that's unbelievable, right? That's that was unbelievable. I'm so glad that was in there because because of the story, you got me very interested in bats because that is just such an off the wall situation. And then I was like, yeah, I'll I'll listen to anything you want to tell me about bats now because we got this very weird situation going on over here. Yeah. No, and it's and it's true. Yeah, vampire bats. You know, they're actually pretty intimate beings, and they don't suck human blood. And it, it's bats are cool. Um, they're awesome. Then, now. Yeah, I was in another story I, I told a couple of times. Is that I was in a writer's workshop with uh, all these different kinds of writers. I was just amazed what different things they were working on. Everything from like um, biblical fan fiction to uh, ra- historical racial novels. And one woman was writing about this hotel in New Jersey during World War One, and it's all about race relations. It, it sounded so fascinating, but she says, I haven't done any writing yet. Said, what do you mean I haven't done any writing yet? You said you're writing a book. So I'll make a big book. She said, I'm just doing research. I'm just doing research. She researched it for two years. She got like a pickle recipe to make sure that the dill was right and the brand of jars that they use to make the, the pickle the cucumbers in and the size. And she looked at me and she said, don't, don't you do that? And I said, no, I just make shit up, you know, and, you know, I was just stunned. So, no, I don't research things that thoroughly, but I do get enough, you know, I read a lot of different things. So, you know, I 
I read all kinds of stuff. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. So then I'll read a little bit more about it. Then, huh, what if? And that's when you, you know, kind of do the Neil Gaiman thing. Just, what if this happened? Yes. So. Yes. Well, I think that the um, the referencing the bat information because of the setting it was in, it was just so interesting. Like I'm like, you could tell me another three pages about bats and because of the <laughs> situation that you've set up here with this guy walking the bats it's like yeah i, I uh and there's like the, the town mob after him it's like yep i and i didn't know 20 one fourth one in every four mammals is a bat like what <laughs> that yeah. was awesome the only, there are a lot of bats yeah and the only flying mammal on earth yeah and it's like have i ever seen a bat outside of a zoo and yet clearly they're everywhere yeah, the one house we lived at, um, we've had a lot, a period of really horrible droughts here in the Midwest, in this part of the Midwest. Great Lakes have gone way down and all that. We used to have all kinds of bats. Bats go where the food is. Um, so if there are fewer, if there's less water, there are fewer bugs. So that they're, but they're, yeah, they devour all kinds of flying insects and things. But for a while, we had, had to be 100 bats living behind the shutters in our house. We had this old 1860s home downtown. Um, but yeah, that's, that's so interesting. Not something that I would have, you know, looked up on my own, but, um, this and other, uh, just totally off the wall or just even slightly skewed situations all in, um, in sometimes Creek, this collection is, uh, is worth, uh, I've read it twice and, uh, it's something different out of it every time. Um, especially the connections between the stories. So, uh, I am commending this to readers. Sometimes Creek came out January 2023 from Cornerstone Press. There will be a link in the show notes to find that, as well as other writing from Steve at his website. So thank you so much for joining me, Steve. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, we, I could have asked you so many more questions. I just I've learned a lot. And um, now I am enjoying the stories even more um, in my memory that now that I've gotten some of the, the, the backstory to the stories, as it were. So thank you so, so much for joining me today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you so thank much. You. And we'll see you next time, readers on, or listeners and readers, on the uh, next episode of Poetry, People, and Things.